From New York City, welcome to Mark to Market. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss issues near and far from personal finance, money, and the markets. You can always reach me at 212-969-6655 or email me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com. Well, we're entering September, and it definitely feels like that time for back to school. So I thought on this episode of the podcast, we'd do a little Finance 101. And to do that, I've brought back our special guest star and my friend on the show, Damon Mendelara, DA from CBS Radio. Damon, thanks for joining. My pleasure, Mark. What's going on? What can we do today? So I'm going to call you, respectfully, a financial neophyte. I think that's a respectful way to say I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, But a radio professional. That's, yes, that would be literally correct. So I'm going to put you in the driver's seat on this podcast okay. to, to give me kind of the Q&A, because I worry, I know you listen to the podcast, that too often I get into all these esoteric finance terms, and we just don't do the basic blocking and tackling of how should people think about their money, maybe some topics that are in the news. So we haven't scripted this. Hopefully this sounds halfway decent. We can edit things out after, I hope. Yeah. So I'm going to turn it over to you, yeah. and, and let's let's play around with this and, and see what your Finance 101 course is for me. Okay, so since this is a back-to-school podcast, I thought I would give you a series of questions starting from when I was in high school to when I was, like, in my 20s, okay? Okay. So these are financial questions that I would want answered going from younger to older. The first thing I would want to know when I was in high school was, does it make sense to have a savings account? Because now... Everybody has checking accounts and ATM cards, and so you write checks or you just swipe your card everywhere, and does it make any sense with the rates of where they are to actually have a savings account anymore? Because when I was growing up, it was like, you have to have a savings account. I remember going into the bank and actually getting like the interest credited on the the passbook savings account. Yeah, yeah. So the question is interesting because, to your point, Interest rates are basically nothing today. So this isn't about whether you're in high school, college, you could have $100 million. It's the same question. How much money should I have at the bank when the bank is effectively paying me nothing, right? So I think you should have money in the bank. Whether it's checking your savings is splitting hairs because the interest on either of those is virtually nothing today. But if it's money you might use in the next six, nine, maybe even 12 or 18 months, you're, you're buying a house, you're thinking about college for your children because they're that age, whatever that might be. That money I do think should be in the bank, in savings, up to the FDIC limits. Now, you're not going to make any money on that money, but you're going to know it's there when you need it three, six, nine, 12 months from now. If it's money that you're thinking about longer term, my kids aren't going to college for five or 10 years, I'm thinking about my retirement, whatever that is, longer term money you should not have in the bank. This isn't an indictment of banks or checking your savings accounts. It's just you're earning literally zero, and to earn zero for the next five or ten years on that money is crazy. So what I would say is think about how much you need for that purchase, if that's what you're thinking about, or more generally, people should have an emergency reserve of just cash available. God forbid something bad happens or if there's an opportunity. Depends on your situation in life, but I would tell you generally that's about six months' expenses, give or take. So the other thing I would say, if you're in high school, you probably have a credit card at this point in time, and... Because credit is always this kind of crazy, looming, dark ghost of, is your credit good? Do you know what your credit is? How do you figure out your credit? Is it going to hurt your credit when you check your credit? All of this type of stuff. <laughs> Does it make sense to pay your credit card down to zero every single month? Yeah, so the, I would define debt as good and or bad debt. 
there are things that I would generally call good debt. Mortgage is a good debt. You, you want to have that debt. It's also probably at a very reasonable rate because it allows you to buy a home. So I put that in the good debt category. The bad debt category, I would put credit card or any other loans that are at least in the double digits. Uh, that you don't want to have. So, so I have talked to people who say, I've got credit card debt, but I want to start saving. I think that's the wrong way to think about it, right? So there's the cost of your debt versus what you can make on your money. If the debt is costing you 15%, no one's probably making you 15% on the money. So even if you save and you make 5% investing, but it's costing you 15%, to make that 5%, you're losing 10% in that game every day. So what I would say is get your debt down to virtually nothing. If you have good debt mortgage otherwise, and, and there are people who are playing around with margin rates and other more complicated ways of using debt for investment purpose, that's fine. But if you're carrying debt, you should get rid of that before you think about savings. The question is always, what's the cost of my capital, whether that's a mortgage, whether it's an auto loan, any of those things, versus what I can do with the money. You never want to be in a position where the bank's making more money off you than you're making off the bank. Unless, of course, you say, look, I can't go buy that house. I got to borrow. Okay, that's a different story. So always reduce your highest cost first. So if I'm in high school, I'm also looking at college, and I'm yeah. thinking about how can I finance college, whether I'm a parent trying to finance college, whether I'm a student trying to finance my own college. It is so crazy nowadays. What is the best way to attack student loans? So best way to attack student loans. So I think it's a two-part question. One is how do I save for college, and then two, how do I pay off the student loan? Uh, one, you hope Bernie Sanders gets rid of the student loan. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so, but Which, assuming- is that even realistic? I don't think so. That's I mean, look, trillions of dollars that people owe. Can you just wipe it? No, and, I, and there's also this issue of moral hazard, and they've talked about it in the financial crisis. It's also if, if you, Damon, have student loan debt and, and you pay it off tomorrow, if you say, look, I got, I, I've really been saving. I'm paying off my debt tomorrow. I want to have my debt done by the end of 2019. And then in 2020, they erase all student loan debt. You look like the giantest fool ever. So I'm always more of a proponent of if you're going to phase anything out, whether it's Social Security or student loan debt, you got to do it over time. Otherwise, you screw up incentives, and, and the market always works based on incentives. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't think that's going to happen tomorrow yeah. beyond how much that's going to cost. Um, saving for college. So the first thing anyone should do, parent, grandparent, individual, is the first most easy thing to do is set up what's called a 529. A 529 is a tax-deferred um, almost like an IRA for college or other forms of higher education. So you set that up for your child, your grandchild. That money goes in there and grows tax-free over the next 18 years so they go to college. You don't pay tax on the growth of that money over the next, whatever it is, 5, 10, 15, 20 and years. And what's the percentage at that? So, so you actually invest that money. You, you could invest that money with our firm, with any firm, right? And there's different state rules, and I could get into that. It gets a little more complicated. But the basic way to think about it is if I'm making – Again, just pick a number, 5 or 10% on the investments within a 529. Typically, you have to pay tax on those investment returns. That investment cost or that tax cost could run 1% to 2%. Now you don't have to pay that tax cost. The government isn't going to take taxes on your earnings. If you get another 1% or 2% of return because you're not paying tax over the next 18 years so your kid goes to college, it's a lot of money. So that's kind of a freebie everyone should do. On the reduction of student loan debt, it's the exact same exercise we talked about before. What's the rate on your student loan versus what can you make on your money? If you're sitting on a lot of cash in the bank because you don't know what to do with the money, you don't know how to invest, you don't want to invest, 
but you've got this student loan debt, the first thing to do is pay off your student loan debt because you're earning zero at the bank and you're paying something on your student loan, something, right? So it's always that spread. If you were paying student loan debt at, I'm making up a, a number, 3%, and you said, I can go invest my money at eight, you should keep the debt at three because you can go make eight. So it's always this question of what's the cost of my capital versus what can I return on my capital? So you wouldn't, you wouldn't, decide what people should do based on timelines or anything like you should you should pay off this much by this year or only take out this much for this it's really it really changes based on every single individual yeah well everything's always individual right i mean everything in our world is individual certain people have different levels of income have certain people have different savings some people own their home some people don't own their home so so unfortunately right on on most of the places you're going to get financial information it is a one-size-fits-all answer in the real world, it's not. Like, I'm on the phone with clients all day who are saying, hey, the market was down 800 points today. Should I buy or sell? That's not an easy question to answer. It really depends on what your circumstances are, how you're already invested, what you're trying to accomplish. You can't just say, like, I'm a buyer, I'm a seller. Same thing with the debt question. But I, I always think the fundamental equation is back to, I'm sorry, I sound like a broken record, but it's what's the cost of that money? And is that cost of money the best place I can get financing or the best place I can otherwise get return. It's, it's not really a time question, right? If, so I'll give you an example. My wife and I are considering buying a home. You could look at mortgage rates today. Let's say that mortgage rate is 3%. That's probably aggressive, but let's just say 3%. In my mind, I would never pay off that mortgage because I believe that I can make more than 3% investing. And if they'll let me borrow a dollar at 3%, I can go earn 8% on it. I'm going to make 5%. I'll do that for ever if the mortgage rate was 10 i would say to my wife i don't know that we can make 10 let's pay this off immediately and so uh, it's not an easy like i I, you should just not have a mortgage you should just have a mortgage you also have to be comfortable with cash flow right if you have a mortgage for example or student debt you got to pay that every month and some people just say look i just i know i can make an extra one or two or three percent but i'm just not comfortable having that outlay every month So, so that factors in it is not in my world all about the math the math guides a ton of it. It's a lot about how do I feel about the math? Because that's going to impact what people do. If you don't feel right about the math and then you make the wrong decision because of how you feel, it will blow up the math. So I, I think the math is a good way to, to way to frame it and then say, okay, can I, can I live with that equation? Some people can't. For college kids, you know, they're told to invest, be aware of, of what you're going to do with your money. And yeah. I go back to the movie The Graduate. Plastics, plastics, plastics. That's the future. <laughs> so one thing that always comes up is stocks and bonds. Invest in stocks yeah, yeah. and bonds. Well, a lot of kids coming out of college don't know the difference between stocks and bonds. I know I did not. So what's the difference? What's better to invest in or, or what's the differential? All right. So, so let's just talk structurally about what the difference is. When you buy stock, conceptually, you own a part of the company. So if you buy shares in Google, Facebook, Microsoft, you own that company. Now, they're not going to ask you what to do with the company. They're not going to ask for your approval about everything. But but conce- not even conceptually, actually, literally, you're an owner of the company. You may be one billionth of an owner of that company, but you own that company. And to the extent that they're going to pay profits to their owners, you get a, what we call a dividend. You get a check for being an owner of a company that's profitable. Your hope is that not only do you get that dividend, but the company does great. And a year or five or 10 years from now, it's a much bigger, more successful company. The company is worth a whole lot more money. And then you can sell out your stake in the company, the shares, and get a whole bunch more than what you paid for it. 
That's the game. There's risk in that. But because there's risk in that, over time, that's about the highest rate of return you can find in investing. Bonds on the other side are the exact opposite. When you buy a bond from the government, from the state of New York, New Jersey, or from a company, you are not an owner of that company. You are lending them money. So in fact, you're a debt holder of that company. They don't owe you any of the profitability. So you lend them money, and what they say, the state, the government, whoever, says, okay, you're lending us money for a fixed term, five years, 10 years. You determine that. That's the type of bond you buy. And over that period of time, they say, thank you for lending us money. We're going to go do stuff with our company with that money. And we're going to pay you interest on that money, almost like going to a bank. And so the state, Apple, whoever, when you buy that bond says, okay, for the next five, 10 years, you get 3%. At the end of that five or 10 year period, and it could be any length of time, we'll give you back the money you lent us. You're not entitled to anything else. And all you're hoping for in an ideal situation is they pay you their interest. They never miss an interest payment. And at the end, you get back the money that you lent them. So it's much more secure. The negative is not as much upside, right? Because you don't get any of the profitability. If Apple gets to be the biggest company ever invented and you bought their bonds, you don't get to profit in that. You just get the whatever interest rate you chose or you lent them money at. So in some ways, it's much more safe. The bad side is if the company goes bankrupt, well, if you own the stock or the bond, you're in bad shape. But technically, and this gets into a little bit of the technics, you're in better shape on a bond because in the bankruptcy code, you would get paid back before the owners of the company. I don't think you have to think about it that way, but just think about it. Bonds are safer. I make less return. I get interest. Stocks, a lot more risky, but I'm going to partake in the the growth of this company, hopefully, and I'm going to sell my shares for more. Over time, stocks have always done a heck of a lot better than bonds. Uh, Think about it. Finance 101, conceptually, it's the essence of capitalism. Capital is supposed to go where it can get the highest rate of return. It is why owners of businesses are our most successful people, because they took the risk to start a business. Lots of businesses don't succeed, but the Bill Gates of the world make billions of dollars for being the guy who changed the Internet or the personal computer. In the stock market, you're playing that game, but you're not entering with the idea. You're buying into a company that is some more fully mature. So now I'm graduating college. Now I'm in my 20s. And now, like you were saying with you and your wife, I want to buy a house. And mortgage is a word that you're like, well, you're going to have a mortgage, a 30-year mortgage. Everyone talks about a mortgage. Mm -hmm. But I don't think a lot of people know specifically what a mortgage is. I know I've gone through the process recently with my wife. And I guess I just never actually realized a mortgage is just a loan. The loan, just a loan. It's just a different word for a loan. It's, it's a house a loan. loan. It's a loan securitized or backed by the house, right? If you don't pay your mortgage, you get kicked out of the house and the bank gets your house. A, an auto loan, a car loan, if you don't make your car payments, you get your car repossessed and the bank now owns the car. That's why you can see like repossession or, or short sales where a house, the, the owner wasn't paying the mortgage, the bank took it, and now the bank owns this house. The bank doesn't want to own a house, so then they've got to go sell it into the market, and typically that's going to sell at a cheaper price because the bank doesn't want to be owning a house, right? They want to get rid of it. They don't want the upkeep. But that's exactly right. A mortgage is just a fancy term for a home loan. And that's where I think this part is interesting. People always say, well, how much do you want to put down? How much do you want to put down? Is it better to put as much money as you have down or is it better to not put it down and put the minimum down, 5% or whatever? Yeah. And the whole deal with that is 
that you're trying to figure out how to pay back the loan, right? right. Because whatever you don't put down is the loan that mm-hmm. you take out of the lender or from a bank. Right. And so this is, I don't want to say it's weird today, but interest rates are so darn low. They're like historically low. It's not true on all mortgages, but but just generally in the context, if you're borrowing money at 4% on a mortgage, the people a generation before us would think, oh my God, I was paying 12, right? So four is really low. Yeah. So here's the question, and it's part of it becomes theoretical, which is, if I can borrow 4% for the next 30 years, I should take as big of a mortgage as possible because I think over the next 30 years, I'm going to make four, more than 4% on my investments. That's what I would describe as the academic answer. But look, most people don't want to have you know 5% down in their house and a giant monthly mortgage payment. Right. So it becomes very much a, a comfort discussion, right? Because mortgages are so low it is attractive to take as much as possible because the money is often said, money is cheap. Borrow money cheap, and if you can lock it in for 30 years, for the next 30 years, you're going to get 4%. Again, using that number, it's probably close. On your mortgage, I would hope 20 years from now, you can at least get 4% at the bank. Maybe the world is different and you don't, but you're locking in for the next 30 years a ridiculously low financing rate. So part of me says academically, you should take as big as a mortgage as possible. The problem is every month you're going to have to make that payment, and most people don't want to do that. So it becomes, again, this question of comfort. I think a mortgage and, and the amount down is very much an emotional conversation for people. It is people's home. Culturally, it is you know the, 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 the centerpiece of the family. It's their biggest asset. There's an enormous emotional connection. It is not just owning shares of Google. So you got, I got to recognize as a finance person, I would say to the listeners, you have to recognize that, yes, the interest rate may be attractive, but you have to recognize how am I going to feel about that monthly payment? Am I comfortable with that much outstanding loan or debt? And so there isn't, again, a one-size-fits-all answer to this. But mathematically, I would say, look, you should borrow as much as you can today because it's so darn cheap. Final question is going to be also piggybacking off of the housing question. We have some people sounding the alarms for a potential recession. and Some people? Some people. <laughs> a lot of people. Some and, people are saying. Yeah. And you have a housing market that has had such low mortgage rates, interest rates, that it has encouraged a lot of buying. But what does this mean? Does the fear of a recession mean it's a good time to buy a house because if you have in if you have the money to spend, yeah. a lot of other people might not, or is it a bad time because it's too volatile to decide on is it a good time for mortgage rates? Is it a good time to price a house? Yeah. So so real estate's really tricky. And I don't mean to punt on this answer, but we know they say everything in real estate is local. It really is, right? So if you're if you're listening to this in a tri-state area, the answer could be different in Manhattan than it would be in the suburbs. It could be different for a million-dollar apartment in Manhattan versus a $10 million apartment. And we've got listeners all over the country and all over the world. So I would say the first thing is know your local real estate market. and That's an enormous key here. There are parts of the market that are still pretty hot, and there are parts that are weak, and, and you have to know the specifics of your market. So I can't really speak generally, and I would say the national data doesn't matter. What matters is the house you're looking at or the neighborhood you're looking at. That all said, I think interest rates are going to be low for the foreseeable future. There's no one who thinks interest rates are going up dramatically anytime soon. So from uh, how much the interest rate is, it it, it impacts what your monthly payment is. So if interest rates doubled tomorrow, what someone could afford would go down. So I think for the next, oh God, probably at least 12 months, 
rates are going to be really low. And so as a buyer, you don't have to worry about buying today because like this opportunity in rates is going to go away. The other side of that is what's going to happen in the economy. I would say, generally speaking, people are split as to whether we'll have a recession in the near term. And the question would be, does that recession bleed into unemployment because people out of jobs leads to less home purchasing and foreclosures and a weaker real estate market generally, less new construction, more vacancies. And so then you could say, well, maybe I wait because interest rates are going to be low. And if the real estate market weakens, it's a more attractive time for me to buy. I think that is conceptually right, but it really does depend about the market you're looking at very specifically. And also, there is a component, this isn't really a finance answer, but if you're buying a home not to flip, not as an investment property, obviously they are because it's going to be a large part of anyone's balance sheet. But if you're trying to raise your family there or have your retirement there for the next 10 or 20 years, I don't know that whether I buy today or 12 months from now is what this is all about. Right. It's about this is the right house and this is what I want to do for my family or my retirement. And yes, nobody wants to overpay. I I get that. You never want to buy at the peak of a market. I don't think we're there, although your agents may say you are. And and then I might wait that out because I I don't think we're in a place where the economy is about to take off. Rates are about to skyrocket. And like if you don't do it now, you're going to really regret it 12 or 18 months from now. I think you're much more in a position where the buyer is in the driver's seat broadly, generally across the nation. And they can take their time to figure it out. There will be some markets where they can be more or less aggressive, but I don't think you have to feel pressure like, oh, my God, my mortgage rates are going to go through the roof. And by the way, if mortgage rates go up through the roof, housing prices may have to come down because if people can't afford the house, the only way that they can then afford the house is the sellers have to drop the price to adjust to the higher interest rate. So there is a there is a um, counterbalancing part of all of this. I might be a... Financial neophyte, but I think after this neophyte conversation, was the word I went with. I apologize for this. After this conversation, I feel like I'm educated. Thank you, Pens. My pleasure, Damon. Thanks for joining. And for those of our listeners, feel free to check us out on iTunes. Like us, um, comment, do whatever you want to sort of support us. Um, you can always reach me again at mark.pensner at bernstein.com, 212-969-6655. Damon, thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. And until next time.